Hello and welcome to Stairway to ATJ, the CBA podcast that deals with all things access to justice. We see access to justice as encompassing all efforts to provide people the opportunity to use the justice system when they're in need of a legal remedy. I'm Anthony Pereira, a program coordinator for Metro Volunteer Lawyers, which is, of course, the pro bono arm of the Denver Bar Association. And I'm Mia Kotnick, the Access to Justice Program Manager for the Colorado Bar Association. So today on this podcast, we're going to be discussing diversity, but we're specifically talking about diversity within the legal profession. We will explore why the concepts of diversity, equity, inclusivity, and intersectionality are important to the growth of the legal profession. These concepts will help shape our conversation as we investigate whether the Colorado legal community is becoming more diverse and why representation matters. So this episode of Stairway to HJ will feature Emily Brock in our pro bono corner. She's from the Rocky Mountains Immigration Advocacy Network, also known as Remain. After hearing about Remain's important work, we're going to hear from Lexi Freeman, who's Associate Dean of DEI, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, at the Sturm College of Law. We're also going to hear from Laura Maggio, an immigration attorney with Muhazen and Muhazen in our interview section. We look forward to hearing about their experiences and perspectives. But first, let's take a listen to the Pro Bono Corner. The Pro Bono Corner gives you a chance to hear about pro bono opportunities and programs addressing access to justice issues from every corner of the state. If you would like to be featured or know of a program that should be featured, email us at atjpodcast at cobar.org. In this pro bono corner, we're going to have us with us today, Emily Brock. Emily, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, yes, thank you for having me today. Um, uh, I'm a senior staff attorney with the Children's Program at Rocky Mountain Immigrant Advocacy Network. Um, we are an organization that provides free uh immigration-related legal services to immigrant children and their families, as well as adults detained at the GEO facility in Aurora. Great. So can you tell us a little bit more about Romaine and the programs you have? Absolutely. So we um, we have two programs. We started off mostly with uh, representing and providing information to um, immigrant adults detained at the GEO facility in Aurora. Um, and that was, in, well, we officially became a nonprofit in 2000, but we started kind of more in the 1990s. Um, and um, once children kind of detained throughout facilities in, in the state, started hearing about our services to adult detainees, they started contacting Remain. And so we launched our children's program in 2005, initially just to kind of represent and and provide uh, information to children detained across the street, but then it has sort of expanded now to include um, their families, survivors of crime who have immigration issues, unaccompanied children, we now provide a whole, we have a whole program um, providing services to the unaccompanied children detained at the um, Office of Refugee Resettlement Shelter in Westminster. Um, and then we, we have sort of expanded to provide services to families um, on the non-detained docket at the Denver Immigration Court. Um, and of course, um, still providing all those services that we have traditionally provided um, at the detention facility in, in, um, 
the geo detention facility in Aurora, um, know your rights presentations, free consultations. And um, one of the backbones of our kind of services and the way that we're able to serve so many people is through uh, pro bono representation, right? We, we recruit pro bono attorneys across the state um, to take cases both in the detained context and in the non-detained context um, so that we can serve just as many people as possible to, under through our mentorship and through the mentorship of our um, very experienced um, mentor panel of um, immigration attorneys. Awesome. You mentioned Westminster and Aurora and Denver. Um, can you kind of just break it down a little bit um, and just kind of list kind of the counties that remain is serving? We actually serve the entire state of Colorado. Awesome. So, so there are no restrictions um, based on county. Um, we get some county specific funding for survivors of crime. Um, and we are, we have been working um, uh, on universal representation through the state of Colorado. Um, uh, right now, there's the Fort Collins Fund that, that is so important to us and um, the Denver um, Legal Defense Fund, that, which um, assists with um, providing uh, funds to provide representation to Denver County residents. But in terms of remain services, there is no restriction, right? We, we have funding to, to provide services to, to people across the state. Can you share a recent success story with us? Um, yes, actually. So um, one of the one of the important um, types of cases that we recruit pro bono attorneys for is for um, kids who have been abused, abandoned, or neglected by one or both of their parents. Um, and the initial step in that immigration case is to actually go to a Colorado state judge and get findings um, from that judge stating that the child was abused, abandoned, or neglected. But that has to be through a kind of a, a juvenile court proceeding, whether that's guardianship or allocation of parental responsibilities. And so we're immigration experts, right? We, we do, um, do guardianship cases and allocation of responsibilities, but we recruit um, family law experts to help us with that section. Um, and we recently just received the green cards for two, um, two young people who were the victims of abuse, uh, familial abuse, um, and a pro bono attorney helped us um, represent their mother in getting custody, full custody of them. Um, so that they could then pursue that special immigrant juvenile status and ultimately their lawful permanent residence. So they're now able to pursue their dreams. One, one of them wants to be in the army and the other one wants to be a lawyer. So she says. <laughs> um, <laughs> so now, now they, they're safe, right? They're safe in the United States and they can pursue their dreams. And, and that was thanks to that pro bono attorney who was able to help us get those findings um, to allow us to apply um, uh, for their immigration relief. And jumping off, story. Yeah, it's <laughs> awesome. And jumping off of the uh, pro bono attorneys that help out, how do our listeners get involved and how, how can they start helping you out? So I really appreciate that question because we are really, we, we need volunteers right now. Um, there are a number of issues um, in immigration law, which is often the case, right? But um, we have a number of individuals detained at the, the detention facility in Aurora, um, people from uh, Nicaragua, um, India, Haiti, Nepal, Brazil, um, and, and we need volunteers to help us with their volunteering. So right? these are asylum seekers who are just trying to um, find safety in the United States, and right now they're detained 
um, in the geo facility and, and um, we would love for volunteers to come help us with their volunteering um, for helping them prepare for what's called a credible fear interview, which is the initial step to being able to apply for asylum. Um, and also, you know, we're still very much concerned with the fact that people are still detained during COVID, right? Um, it, detention facilities are some of the most dangerous places for people with underlying health conditions, even if they are vaccinated against COVID-19. And so one of the biggest needs uh, from the detention program is for attorneys who are willing to help with humanitarian parole, right, which is a request to allow that person to be paroled into the United States due to their underlying health conditions. Um, and then from, from the children's program perspective, while we're always looking for volunteers for, um, uh, for that family law piece of the special immigrant juvenile status, right now our biggest need is um, to represent families who are seeking asylum on an expedited docket at the Denver Immigration Court. There have been expedited dockets under, you know, countless um, administrations, but this docket seems to be going on a much more expedited timeline, um, and we really need volunteers to, to take these cases. Um, people are being given two-week continuances to find an attorney. That's impossible, right? These are people who don't have work permission. They are not allowed to work in the United States, and they're being expected to pay an attorney in two weeks. It's impossible. And so what we really, really appreciate is anyone who's willing to come forward and help us with those cases. If you can't take a full case, we, we are um, trying to set up a um, pro se workshop model um, in collaboration with the Colorado Asylum Center. Um, and so you can volunteer with the Colorado Asylum Center to help people really um, understand how to fill out the asylum application, which of course is in English and many of them don't speak English. So. You know, if there are non-attorneys listening to this, we also are looking for interpreter volunteers. Um, uh, if you speak Spanish or any any language, really, I'm sure we can <laughs> match you with someone who needs that assistance. So um, that's my very long-winded plea for, for help. So two quick logistical questions. Um, what qualifications or experience do volunteers need, if any? You do not need experience. You need to be licensed in a state in, in the United States um, for various reasons. I, even if you want to do that state court portion, um, you can apply to get a pro bono, um, I think it's a pro bono certifi certificate or mm -hmm. a, just a, a number from the Colorado Bar um, in order to, to provide pro bono uh, representation. But for immigration purposes, you only have to be barred in, in a state in the United States because it's federal law that you're practicing. Um, and then you don't need any experience. We provide you with materials. We have um, uh, a mentor panel. You will, you, any volunteer who takes a case through us gets paired with a mentor, whether it's a Remain attorney or um, a, an experienced immigration attorney. Um, and you get a referral memo that outlines kind of the legal arguments um, so there's no experience needed. Um, yeah. Well, Emily, that sounds like a great opportunity. If our listeners do want to get involved, um, how do they get in touch or who should they reach out to? So if they go to our website, www.remain.org, um, there's a get involved tab and you can click on that tab and there's all different types of opportunities and you can click on each type of opportunity and fill out an interest form. And that goes to our pro bono coordination team. Um, and they will be in contact um, as quickly as possible to get you paired up with a case. Um, 
Sounds great. And, and anyone, <laughs> you're also free to contact me. <laughs> you can find my profile on the rain.org, but um, really that get involved tab that's going to be the best way to contact us. Awesome. Thank you for joining us today, Emily. Thank you. So first, we'd like to introduce Laura Maggio. Laura defends rights of immigrants both in immigration court and throughout their immigration process with U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services Office. She passionately believes in the rights of immigrants and competent and zealous advocacy of members of the immigration community. Laura earned her JD from the University of Denver Sturm College of Law. And prior to attending law school, she got her bachelor's in global affairs with a minor in French. Um, with that, she gained a deep understanding of the political, social, economic, and cultural um, global issues. So Laura was actually born in the Dominican Republic and emigrated to the United States in 2005. She uses her unique education and experience to emphatically represent immigrants in a wide variety of immigration cases. And that ranges from defensive and affirmation asylum cases to naturalization. Thank you for joining us, Laura. Thank you for having me. We would also like to introduce Lexi Freeman, an incredible educator in person. Lexi Freeman leads Denver Law's nationally recognized externship program. She also teaches social change lawyering courses and oversees a range of efforts dedicated to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Lexi was awarded the prestigious Robert B. Yegi Excellence in Teaching Award at the, at the University of Denver in 2019. She was also named the University Faculty Career Champion for all gra graduate students by the University of Denver Career Services. She is honored to regularly receive the Student Bar Association's Mentorship Award, and she has been the recipi recipient of multiple grants from IRISE and the Center for Community Engagement. In addition, she has a distinguished record working alongside low-income communities and communities of color as a racial justice and legal advocate. Prior to joining Denver Law, Lexi worked as an attorney at Advancement Project, a national civil rights group where she assisted grassroots organizations across the country on social justice advocacy campaigns around education and juvenile justice policy and housing and voting rights issues. She continues to support, support grassroots communities and social justice movements pro bono. She also serves on the board of the ACLU of Colorado and on various academic committees around experiential learning and regularly presents on topics related to, to diversity and equity, also on movement lawyering and externships. She received her JD from Harvard Law School, where she was recognized for her leadership on campus and her public service commitment. She holds a BA in Journalism and Interdisciplinary Studies from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. She first became interested in issues of racial and social justice as a child, growing up in an interracial and interfaith family. She is also a proud mother, spending her weekends attending her children's sports games and dance and music lessons. Welcome, Lexi. Thank you so much for having me. So this is Stairway to ATJ, ATJ being access to justice. So we always like to ask our guests, what does access to justice mean to you? So in a sentence or two, what does it mean to you, Laura? 
to me, access to justice means that regardless of what makes up an individual um, and how they identify in terms of gender or race, um, sexual orientation, that they still feel like they have equal opportunities in terms of receiving guidance through the judicial system in particular, and that at the end, they'll also be able to equitably receive protections from the justice system. Lexi, in a sentence or two, what does access to justice mean to you? Yeah, it's always harder to go second, right? Because Laura um, had such an eloquent um, and I think accurate answer. Um, I will say, I think it's a hard question and that I think the term has lost some meaning because I just don't think access to justice really exists. And I think we also throw around terms very, very, uh, they're co-opted, right, Um, a lot. Um, But I think what it's supposed to mean is that individuals and communities as a whole are able to get the legal support that they need when they need it um, and that they leave their interaction with the legal system, with with the legal play or the players in that system, believing sort of accurately, right, that they, their issue um, and their community were treated equitably, you know, equally and fairly. So just to lay a little framework for the rest of our discussion, Lexi, can you tell us what the terms diversity, inclusion, and equity mean? Sure. And I'm going to sort of answer the question by totally stealing um, a very common, um, I guess, anecdote that's used to describe these terms. Um, It's been used now by a number of people, and I actually don't know who initially created it, but the idea is sort of analyzing or um, creating an analogy um, to DEI as it relates to like going to a party. So um, just want to be clear that I did not create this analogy, but I think it's a good one. So the idea of diversity is that like everyone is invited to come to the party, right? So it means that regardless of your identity, your perspective, your background, um, we're telling you that we want you here, right? Um, And that because we think that having a mix like that, that mere presence of a mix of people is valuable. Um, Inclusion to me means that you know, everyone, to use this analogy, everyone gets to contribute to the menu, right? To the playlist, like at the party. So it's about belonging, right? It's about the idea that not only are you here, but like, we're really glad that you're here. And we're so glad that we want your ideas. We want your perspective. Um, We want to hear what you have to say. We want your opinion. And we want you to be able to feel like when you offer your opinion, you can bring your true authentic self. You can be honest, right? And bring your whole self. Um, And then equity would mean that everyone has an opportunity to dance, right? To participate in the party. So it's ensuring that there are protocols, processes, policies, probably some other P word, right? That that are um, in place that are fair, right? That like everyone knows about, that everyone can have access to and can get the equal result, right? When going through those processes and protocols. So if you wanna dance, no problem. There's a system and here's that system. I like it. I like the, I like that's a fun analogy because it's a party. Um, (laughs) So uh, Laura, can you explain the kind of concept of intersectionality and what that means when it comes to diversity? Sure. Um, I don't have a fun party anecdote, but (laughs) (laughs) um, um, in layman's terms, intersectionality is sort of the interplay and, and overlap of what makes up different individuals and groups, whether, you know, I mentioned earlier, be like the interplay between gender and race and how one person can have these different characteristics or, or identities and still and face disadvantages because of, how, of the characteristics that they have. So it can't just, it can be that you are at a disadvantage or face discrimination, not just because you're a woman, 
but because, for example, like me, you're a Hispanic woman. So there can be more than one reason as to why you have a disadvantage in society. And so with uh, those definitions in mind, um, how do you identify yourself? Um, Lexi, do you want to start with this one? Sure. So I actually appreciate the phrasing of the question because um, throughout my entire life, I mean, it literally seems like since I've been out of the womb, I've been asked um, much less gracefully, you know, what are you? It is a constant question. Um, uh, and it is an exhausting question. And I think a far less thoughtful um, way of being genuinely interested in my identity. Um, I think um, I am, uh, to, to many people, I am um, ethnically ambiguous or ethnically confusing. Um, and that makes people a little uncomfortable because I think people like to categorize people, right? Um, uh, and I don't easily fit into a particular bucket. Um, so uh, with that background, um, I grew up in a household um, with a, a dad who is African-American um, and identifies as Christian. And then my mom who was white, specifically Russian um, American and identified as Jewish. Um, and we talked in our multiracial and multi-faith household constantly about um, those identities um, and about but and about also though how um, blackness is what people are going to care most about um, in American society, despite my appearance and the obvious skin and color privilege um, that I have. Um, so ultimately, um, I identify, I would say very strongly as a woman of color, um, but I also identify as a black woman and I also identify as a multiracial woman um, because I think those are um, related but also distinct identities. Um, but you know, overall, really, it's being like just a person of color that has very much um, guided my entire worldview and the lens in which I see the world. Thank you for that thoughtful and open response. Laura, how do you identify yourself? Um, well, similar, uh, similar to Lexi in, in, in terms of being ethnically ambiguous um, generally, but um, I, for me, especially being Hispanic, where in the census we're categorized as white, but I clearly don't look white. I have dark skin and big curly hair. Um, it is, it makes it very confusing. Um, so I think especially Hispanic people, and we're so diverse in terms of what countries we come from, um, it, it, it becomes very difficult to even identify yourself within your own community. That being said, I personally identify as um, a Caribbean Hispanic person, but not just Caribbean, Spanish speaking Caribbean um, and a, a mix. I, I, in terms of race, I, I'm not, I don't identify as either white or black, just mixed. Um, and then for me, what's most important is the fact that I'm Dominican. <laughs> Thank you both. Um, it's kind of a strange question as far as why are we talking about I, racial, ethnic diversity and things like that when we're talking about access to justice. Can you describe why racial and ethnic diversity are an access to justice issue? They are an access to justice issue because, at least in my experience as an immigration attorney, right off the bat, um, based on what race or, or gender you are, you end up being placed in certain categories in terms of what priority the, the system will give you. Um, in immigration law in particular, for example, Hispanic families that will come from Central America are now being placed in what's called a rocket docket, which is basically a fast paced moving docket in the immigration court where um, judges are basically just like skimming through these claims and trying to get people in or out as quickly as possible. Um, so that doesn't happen for people that come from other countries. 
So that's an example, a clear example of what's happening today where your race and even the fact that you are a woman that came with children will put you in a certain place and category within the immigration system. Um, so what for me, what I see and what it means is that just because of who you are and the things that the characteristics that you were born with, initially the system will treat you differently and, and does treat you differently. Yeah, I mean, I would certainly echo um, uh, Laura's response and, you know, her day to day, she's more in this than I am, right, um, and given my role at the university at this point. Um, you know, I would just say that, you know, I, I do think broadly access to justice, you know, is not limited to people who are, um, you know, from historically underrepresented groups. We know that, you know, folks who live in rural areas, right, folks who are low income also struggle, right, with, with access to justice issues. But we also know that literally since our country's inception, people of color have been disproportionately negatively impacted by the legal system and have literally had less access to lawyers, right? So I think the intersection here of structural racism with structural poverty has resulted in generations um, of communities of color not being able to access wealth and then not being able to literally afford lawyers, right? For an example, but because of that. Um, and we also know, right, that bias is like deeply entrenched in all of us um, as individuals and then deeply impressed in, in, entrenched in a system such as, for example, the criminal system. So and affecting the results of who enters it, right, and why, and then obviously what happens to them once they're there. Um, meanwhile, as Laura, I think, can speak too far better than I can, you know, in our immigration systems or our civil systems, you know, lawyers aren't even mandated or guaranteed, right? And so you've got like droves of immigrants, man, namely immigrants of color, who like are being detained, deported, you know, mistreated, um, or low-income residents of color being evicted from like their house with all without like a lawyer by their side. You know, to me, this is like wild, like when you say that out loud, right, that something so impactful doesn't require a lawyer. Um, and, but like generally this is what we allow in our country, right? And if, I mean, if that's not a lack of access to justice or perhaps more accurately an injustice, I'm not really sure, you know, what, what is. Um, so I think you both have touched on this, but um, so we've been talking about communities of color and um, racial and ethnic diversity, but could you speak to the other types of diversity that it's important to think about within our legal community and why those other aspects of um, diversity are important too? Lexi, I think you were touching on a few of these. So do you want to continue that thought? So, you know, I, I do think that the focus um, uh on, on race, um, especially in the last, you know, year or two, many people say we're under sort of a, you know, both a, you know, racial pandemic, right, but also a racial justice awakening. Um, I do think this focus has been critically important um, because, um, I, and I think race really does need to be, continue to be centered. Um, I, I believe our country is founded on principles of, of white supremacy, um, and that's created, you know, structural barriers for generations, right, um, that's been virtually imp impenetrable um, for, by black folks, right? Um, and indigenous folks and people of color more broadly. But with that said, you know, certainly we know um, that people have multiple identities um, and that many other communities have also been systematically oppressed. So, you know, whether it's, you know, um, you know, when we think about, I guess, our legal profession, you know, it's like, it's like the rest of elite America. It's namely white, it's namely cisgendered, right? It's namely male. It's namely folks who are not living with a disability. It's native English speakers, you know, and the list could go on, right? I'm, I'm certainly don't mean to exclude. Um, it's, oh, it's people with wealth, right? Who, who are normally middle to higher income, right? Backgrounds, people whose parents 
also went to college. I mean, all these things like first gen, there's a reason why that term exists, right? So, and I, I don't mean to exclude other um, uh, important communities, but you know, this is not a good thing, right? That our, that this is the reality of our profession. Um, because I think what it means, what it ends up resulting in is that people who disproportionately literally have more power because, you know, people who have law degrees get to access to certain information, certain knowledge, certain people, certain policies that others cannot, right? So people with more power, and then subsequently people who can make really impactful decisions that affect the lives of individuals and communities, they don't represent the range of identities and perspectives and the like that exist in, in the US, right? Or on a smaller scale in our city or in our state, you know, whatever. Um, so I think we like, there are just all these populations have historically been excluded from positions of power and law literally as a profession right is a is a position of power right even for those of us who maybe didn't come from that we now have a certain like gravitas a certain knowledge and a certain access that we didn't before um and i think we need to ex do more to expand who is in our space across all identities paying particular attention to those who have been historically excluded which again falls under many many character uh, categories not not only race Laura, uh, what reactions do you have and what identities um, are apparent to you in your work? Um, well, to kind of jump off of what Lexi said, and my work, obviously one of the biggest inequities are linguistic differences um, and how not speaking English will prevent you from knowing or understanding many things, which leads to misunderstandings within the communities because then it's like the blind leading the blind because nobody knows how to clarify. Um, so within our profession, especially like having an attorney, not just having an attorney, which as Lexi said, is already on, like very hard to obtain, um, having an attorney that understands where you're coming from, that in any way looks like you, speaks your language and can identify with your own trials and tribulations, no pun intended, um, is, is what's most clear as like inequities, at least in, in the immigration and criminal, I'm sure in both of those worlds, um, for me, primarily, it's, it's the fact that it's very hard for respondents or defendants to find people that can understand where they're coming from. And then based on that understanding, represent them appropriately. It's always an interesting conversation of, um, should your attorney look like, should the attorneys look like the clients? Um, and I say looks like it, there's more to identity than looks, obviously, but it just as a general concept and things like that. Um, and because there's more to it than just how you outwardly appear, can you guys talk about intersectionality of all these different things and how that relates to the profession and whether or not we should take a approach where we just focus on um, these individual things as individuals like race, gender, sex, or if we should look at people as a more the sum of all their parts. Um, Lexi? I think it's important to take an intersectional approach um, because we all have many experiences and identities um, and more that affect our realities, they affect our, our, our frameworks, um, and we should be welcoming and understanding and proactive, right, uh, about that. Um, but I also think we need to follow individuals' leads, right? So, um, meaning we don't want to impose what we think is important about their identity on them, right? Um, you know, should we be, I, you know, I've said this already, but should we be doing more to bring in folks from underrepresented groups and create meaningful, you know, space and opportunity for them? A hundred percent, right? Um, but we should also know that sometimes folks 
don't want to wear that diversity hat all the time and they don't want to outwardly identify um, if, if they don't have to um, um, in, in one way. Um, they don't want to serve on a certain committee, even though they check that box too, right? Um, uh, and I think like we as a profession um, and those of us with power need to do more to understand this. And I think we also can't expect or be disappointed if people don't jump up um, to join like every diversity opportunity, right? Um, some may shy away from those spaces or shy away from like some of the hats that they technically occupy. Um, and I think we, that's more than okay when we just have to sort of like follow individuals leads. I mean, it's just the same with like terminology. Oh, what term should I use? Like what, what does the person want you to call them, right? Like let's like, let's invest a little more in individual uh, relationship and understanding. I recognize that's not necessarily fixing a structural problem, but I think there's like no way we can get to structural problems until we start to like really understand people and meet them where they are and like respect their preferences. I think the individual approach is, is particularly interesting um, because do you identify, you might be identified as a Hispanic woman, do you identify more as a woman or more as Hispanic? It might depend on the day too, like or the particular issue and things like that. So I think the individual approach, and then you also bring up with the individual approach, the idea that uh, you're Hispanic woman, so you should be on the Women's Bar Association and you should be in the Hispanic Bar Association and you should be in all these different things. And that's asking a lot just time-wise. Um, so Laura, do you have any thoughts on uh, intersectionality and, and the profession, how we should view uh, our fellow attorneys? I think Lexi summed it up wonderfully. Um, really, the one thing that I have to add is to kind of bring it all together is that we can't expect one person, like you guys were saying, to just identify as one thing all the time. And that's like the highlight of their day every single day. Um, people have different aspects of identities within themselves. Nobody exists within an internal vacuum. And in order to encourage growth and, and comfort for other people, we do have to be aware of what's important to them in, in, in particular situations and, and not in other situations. So as we've uh, shifted towards looking more at the profession, um, and I think we've probably danced around this question a little bit, but why does representation matter? Why is it important to have diverse um, attorneys? I actually want to start this one with a little bit of a personal story. Um, when I first started practicing my first year in practice, I was representing um, a 16-year-old Central American girl in deportation proceedings, which by default, I think the fact that minors not needing, like not being required to have attorneys within a courtroom is horrendous. Um, but nevertheless, here we were, and she hadn't met me in person before. We'd only talked on the phone. And when she saw me, she asked me like, you're my lawyer wait, so you can be Hispanic and a woman and be a lawyer here? And then she decided in that moment, when I grow up, I want to be like you. And for me, that story just really kind of answers the question. Like, that's one of the moments in my life when I realized, wow, like people are noticing and, and it is making a difference that I'm standing here defending others that, you know, might not think that they would have a chance not just to defend themselves, but to defend others as well. And for the listeners on the podcast, um, you got a lot of head nods right when she was telling that story. So uh, Lexi, go ahead. Yeah, no, and I'm not going to say much because I think that is really the epitome of it. Um, you know, at, at Denver Law, we have a long history of doing pipeline work. And it's like, it's the same thing we did just this week, we did an event um, with Denver Public Schools, um, their career sort of coaching, I'm going to butcher the name. So uh, their career office did this event 
And it was myself along with three current law students, all of whom represent um, uh, identities that are historically underrepresented in the profession. And it was just about like talking about our paths, right? And talking about that we're in this space, right? And talking about some of the challenges and also the benefits. And I mean, the students, they're like 15, which I was never thinking about law school at 15, but they're like taking notes. And I mean, that's what that matters, right? That matters for, for representation. Um, and the only, but the only other thing I will add is in addition to sort of simply our presence, I do think that the law, you know, affects virtually every aspect of society, right? Um, it has a direct impact of, on people's lives. If we don't have lawyers, right, from who can relate to the different experiences that individuals have, I think we're doing our profession and our future clients and frankly, the future of the law and the policies that we make a disservice, right? Because we can learn from people's various life experiences, their lived experiences, in addition to the education and the training and all that, you know, fancy stuff, but we need people to be in the room to be able to do that, right? So I think it's both like mere presence and also actually it should, I think, and I think it does often inform the work and the approach and the ability to relate to the people that we have a duty to serve. Can you talk a little bit more about that pipeline approach? Um, like, where does it start? I feel like it's almost a chicken and egg situation as far as where, when do we start? When do we get people into this pipeline? You know, I, I think, Pipeline, at least for Denver Law, the approach we take basically is we talk to folks who are sixth grade all the way up to applying, they're, they're submitting their application tomorrow, right? Um, because I think that the reality is that in some families and in some households, you talk about graduate school at the dinner table when you're five, right? And you know, because your parents are going to work or someone's got this degree. And in other families, like they don't have the luxury to do that, right? They haven't had the access and opportunity to have that education for a number of reasons. So I think we wanna start planting seeds early. What those seeds look like, you know, to a 12 year old versus, you know, an 18 year old in college, like that's quite different, right? And I think we have to obviously be willing to adjust and, um, and break things down. But you want to start to introduce um, career paths that maybe have not been um, as uh, common in certain communities early so people can know that this is an opportunity. And we also just know that other people are already have the like the, the wheels turning, right? So I want to try to help people not get already more behind because of what society has imposed on them. So what can we do to like help them have certain information and knowledge and help them introduce them to the profession and to people in it? So I don't know if that totally answers the question, but I think, you know, you could talk to, you could have a career day in first grade and have a lawyer come, right? And talk about what that means. Again, I don't picture that person like, you know, studying for the LSAT in second grade, but <laughs> it starts to like plant seeds of like what it means. Oh, you have to go to college first. And like, what is college? You know, so you just got to have, have these conversations early. So um, in your experience, um, what do you think of the profession? Do you see diverse identities when you look around you? Um. Yes, but not as much as I would like, <laughs> you know, I, um, especially in immigration law, now that I'm about five years in, which is crazy because I feel like I just graduated. Um, I, there's, there's a lot of women, which is awesome. Um, but it, it's a lot of white women, which is awesome. I love my white ladies, but I, I don't see enough of, of anything else. Um, which for me is sad because we're in immigration law. Like the whole point is that you're around all these different types of immigrants. And while I agree that there's maybe not every day where an immigrant wants to like come in and, and be a part of a box that they wanna check and, and look for lawyers that check those boxes as well. I do know because of the story that I mentioned earlier that it is important to see a people that maybe look like you or, or have different experiences that can relate to yours or identify in certain ways like, like the way the, the client identifies. 
Um, so in some, it's better, but it, it, it could be much, much better. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to give an example, um, you know, is it better than we were 25 years ago? You know, probably, yeah, right? Um, at least in some categories, I think. Um, but, you know, when I look at, um, like sort of, again, my small world at Denver Law, each class is about 20 to 25%, you know, students of color, you know, is that better than some law schools in the country? Yeah. Is it something to be proud of? I don't think so. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, I also in the building, um, which perhaps uh, Laura and Mia remember, um, you know, there are pictures of the graduates um, lining the hallways of, of Denver Law. And I think it's no secret that I do not love these pictures, um, even though I understand alumni I'd love to come back and see their and I can imagine, you know, especially as a parent now, you know, showing your kid, like, I, I get that. But the challenge with those pictures, right, is who's it, who has occupied the law school space, right? Um, again, I don't think these pictures would be that different in any other law school. But nevertheless, they're full of basically white men. I mean, they, those white men may have other identities, but like, that's the majority, like, of what you see. Um, so I think we have, you know, I want those pictures to look very, very different. And we're not there yet if we have one person in a row, right? Um, and the other thing is I was looking the other day at a study um, and while this is only one population, it said, you know, African-Americans are about 13%, et cetera, of the US population and make up only about 5% of lawyers. And amazingly, and this is what I think is particularly important, that percentage hasn't changed much in like 10 years, right? So like, that tells me that we, and that's just, again, one population, but that we have a very long way um, to go. Very, very long way. Okay, so what I'm hearing is that in some ways we've made strides, you know, another example is that we now have more women um, nationally attending law school than men. Um, but then when you look at like top forms, women are not <laughs> uh, equally represented. So I guess my question um, is, is representation in the profession enough? You know, I think that representation maybe speaks to the diversity um, aspect of what we've been talking about, but does it really get to equity um, and inclusivity? Um, Lexi, do you wanna take this one first? Sure, so I mean, I guess it goes to the, you know, party analogy, right, that I said I stole earlier, like representation does matter. Um, Laura's, you know, anecdote, I think is a great example of that. Um, and I think, you know, when you consider women, um, general law, we have majority women, right? And that's great. I'm, I'm really happy to look in a sea of faces and see a lot of women. Um, when we were talking about identity earlier, like my identity is much more, more strongly rooted in my identity as a person of color than necessarily my identity as a woman. Though that shifted a little bit when I became a parent. Um, but nevertheless, um, you know, I do think representation matters. You know, when, when there are more people in the room, we can learn from each other, right? Um, and we also, I think importantly, um, people can build each other up, right? It's much easier in a law school classroom to raise like a question related to gender if you see other folks who might identify like you, right? And again, visual representation is not always the case, but it gives you a, a, maybe a little bit of a starting point. And you know, you might assume that you're gonna get support or you might assume that at least others will understand your experience and that might empower you to say more, right? And I do think that um, that's important. Um, and I think that affects inclusivity, um, but I certainly don't think that's enough. Um, you know, we can't just leave things to chance because there's more bodies in the room, right? It's, it's step one. Um, I think we have to ensure that we have, you know, policies, practices, practices, programs, you know, proactive things that are like, you know, addressing the historic lack of representation, right? Addressing and calling out the problems with the law that like in property, you're reading a whole lot of cases that are decided by white men, right? Um, so, you know, I think we have to be able to talk about these things. And, and I do think that having more people in the space maybe lets that happen. But I also think it's on the responsibility of those of us who are in positions of 
for lack of a better word, power to like to raise dialogue, to make sure there are things that that pull people in that create that sense of belonging. Because it doesn't just like, you know, by osmosis happen just because you happen to see another person who like maybe looks a little like you, right? Laura, uh, what are your thoughts? Is representation enough? Um, no, <laughs> I completely <laughs> agree with Lexi. Um, I, especially to me when she said um, that we also have to build each other up, what, what I was what I would like to add to that is that one thing that I've noticed, unfortunately, in the profession, in terms of both of my identity as a woman and um, as a Hispanic woman, is, and, and I've been saying this now for the, the five years I've been practicing, that sometimes, or a lot of times, it, it can happen where somebody will climb the ladder and then kick it off so that the other person can't climb up. And so while you might see, oh, great, there is a Hispanic woman, turns out that now she isn't aware that, that it's also, it helps or is necessary for her to, to build the next person up, like, like Lexi said, or help them climb the ladder as well. Um, so we also have to be cognizant of the fact, like, again, back to what Lexi said, that our presence isn't enough. We also have to be proactive. Can I just jump on, I think Laura makes a really important point. Um, you know, when a person does, quote unquote, achieve, right, or, or gets to become that partner or the executive director, or whatever, whatever it is, they, they've broken in, that is great, right, for that person. Um, it's a step forward, I think, for the profession. But I think what sometimes happens is there, there is a, a feeling that there's so few spots. So then you end up with this, this challenge of, um, like, uh, you know, sort of bias within the own community, right? Where people are like fighting, right? For that one spot, because they feel like there's only, well, there's only two, right? For women, or there's only two for black folks or whatever, right? And like, I have to be the non-binary person in the room, you know, and that's, that's a problem, right? Like that shouldn't, we shouldn't have to pit members of the same community against each other. And I think that sometimes happens because when you finally access that, you feel like you have to like hold on to it because like it could be taken away so easily, right? Because of how our society functions. And I think that is one of the most painful components of this problem because we really want, you know, I, I thrive when I'm in a community where I feel like I'm supported by folks who've had some similar, you know, we're, none of us are monolithic to be clear, but have had some similar experiences. And when when that seems like, oh, there's just not a spot and we're competing, it just, it, that, that really affects that. And I think that is, um, and I think sometimes that is perpetuated by folks in power who have like one position or one per one slot for the person on the committee. And it's like, well, one of our, one of our folks of color can get it. And I just think that's not helpful. I don't think that's the way we should think about things. So I just wanted to echo Laura's point there. I thought it was really good. Yeah. It sounds like having so few spots or the mindset that there are so few spots is, um, a clear issue. Um, and I'm trying to think of other issues are, do you see a lot of issues being implicit bias? People just assuming um, things about other people that they can't do the job because they're women or black or things like that. Or do you think they're just so ingrained in the system or probably both? What are your thoughts on, on that, Laura? Um, definitely both. Um, I, I think, especially as a woman, I, I know one thing that I hesitate with a lot is kids and how it could affect potentially my, my career in the future and my ability to do my job. Um, obviously things have gotten better in terms of gender roles and whatnot, but even like my home life and how that will affect, um, those are things that I think, you know, I think about them, but I don't know if my male boss, whom I love, um, but has four kids and his wonderful wife has obviously helped a lot with that. I don't think, I don't think our concerns are the same. Um, and those are things that, that maybe I'm aware of practically every single day, I think about it. Um, and, and sometimes other, like our concerns, since we don't all have the same concerns, then we all have different things we want to move forward. 
and maybe don't realize when we're not helping each other or preventing each other from moving forward. I think it's both. Um, I think the sometimes the the we it's easier to say it's just individual implicit bias, um, and I think that maybe makes sometimes folks not think about examining policies and structures. Um, so um, I certainly don't think it is only implicit bias, but I, but I, you know, we, the implicit bias is like, you know, to me, this is a science, right? We, we know we have certain frames of reference. We know that things affect how we view the world. Um, and the key is, you know, being conscientious of it and then being proactive or intentional, right? Um, but I, I think it's not, it's certainly not only that. So it's not just implicit bias. There are these systematic um, problems that perpetuate inequality. I was wondering if you can identify and discuss a few of the historic systematic issues um, that still need to be addressed before we can achieve equity in the profession. Um, well, I mentioned gender roles, you know, that that's a huge one for women in terms of what has held us back. You know, we're expected. I think I've, I've been seeing a lot of, well, the, the 40 hour work week or the five day work week was designed so that somebody would stay home and that's no longer sustainable uh, because now women find themselves having to do two jobs. Um, you know, work and then go home and, and do start their second shift, as I call it in my house. And I don't even have kids, so I don't can't even imagine um, that. And of course, there's been um, in terms of immigration policies, which um, to go back to what I do every day, um, the immigration laws change with whoever is whatever administration is actually in charge. Um, and so that means that immigrants can't rely or even their families won't know how their cases will go um, based on you know everyday changes in the last four years for example immigration law changed every two and a half days every two and a half days i was having to relearn i've had it change while i was in the courtroom um, and sometimes the change is to move things forward and sometimes the change is to hold things back um, and and it's really unfair that immigrants can't rely or people who want to immigrate to this country can't rely on laws that will at least change with thought before they change um, and, and, and without bias. And there's not really that opportunity with with immigration law. So that's something that I see every day today. From, I, I appreciate that Laura answered that from sort of the perspective of what her day to day is. So I'll answer it um, from the perspective of, I guess, my current day to day. Um, uh, but which I think active, you know, current lawyers can help with. So um, structurally, um, I, I think that the focus on the LSAT as an entry point to legal education is a major problem. Um, we know that for, you know, because of things like stereotype threat, because of underfunded schools, um, because of economic challenges, and much more that students of color, um, students whose first language is in English um, and similar, don't perform as well on standardized tests. This is just like the research has shown this for years, right? It has nothing to do with you know, competency to be very clear, right? It's all these other factors. Um, but yet the LSAT is a critical component of like law school admission, arguably the most important, right? Um, despite you know, holistic views that law schools take, it's so important because it affects law school ranking. And you know, if that ranking is on the top of law school's minds when you think about it because it affects who applies, it affects who donates, it affects who is gonna teach there. Um, so if we can't find a way um, to de-emphasize that LSAT, um, I think we're gonna be on a hamster wheel. And I think we're gonna have the same challenges every year of who can access legal education. So I'm taking it back a little, but I think we can't talk about the profession until we, like as a whole, until we talk about who can even have any entry, right? So I think that's one major, major issue. I also think the cost of legal education is incredibly challenging. 
Um, it is hard for anyone, let alone folks who have been shut out of generational wealth, um, to justify entering our profession with the amount of debt folks have, let alone entering it and taking a public sector job. So thanks, Mia, because as someone who has in the public sector, I mean, like, it is, or, a, or frankly, also the small firm world isn't so much different, right, than the public sector um, world. So, you know, and, and I, I was a nonprofit lawyer, so I, I get it, right? Um, but we've got to find a way to make um, legal education more affordable, and we have to create incentives. Um, you know, and I actually think the private bar um, can help with this, right? So, um, which is why I flag it, but we just, we just can't leave it as people are just not gonna come. And then the other one thing I want to mention sort of structurally is that I think in Colorado, um, and, you know, this is my personal hat in which I'm speaking, of course, but, you know, I think we really need to look at like our bar cut score. And I think we need to look around um, our policies um, with the testing too. So taking the latter first, you know, I, my understanding anecdotally is that it's really hard for disabled students to get accommodations for the bar exam. These are likely folks who have had accommodations their entire K through JV schooling. And now they're being told on arguably what is the most like important test of their life, right? In a very stressful environment that like they can't take, they can't get those accommodations. Now, to be clear, I'm not involved in that process. I am sure it's complicated and there are a lot of factors, but it rubs me a little bit, right? Um, that that's a challenge because that is creating a bar, right? To, to folks being able to be successful. Relatedly to the first point, the cut score is very high. It is much higher than like most of the states in the country. So why does that matter as it relates to DEI? Is it matters because like, if someone needs a job now, right? Because they need to support themselves and or their family. If someone can't afford another bar prep course, if someone can't afford another bar application, right? Like what, they're leaving. They now have left Colorado and we have now lost, um, you know, a person who may be diverse, right, to our profession, right? Um, and I think that is a like a travesty, right? So um, I don't, I, I believe that the, the bar cut score affects many of students. I don't think it only affects um, students who are from historically underrepresented groups, but I also know that our students from those groups sometimes have to work while they take a long, like they take the bar exam, sometimes can't afford a, bar, a, a multiple bar prep classes, you know, have other things, family needs that they have to pay attention to um, because of all the, the structural challenges that exist that have plagued their families. So I think we should be doing like everything possible to try to re like get people here and retain them. And these are just some challenges that I just think are like embedded into how we make decisions, which ultimately affect who's gonna be able to practice in Colorado courts 10 years later. Um, can you talk about any programs or efforts um, that you think are successful or promising um, in bringing more diverse individuals into the profession? Lexi, do you wanna start with this one? Sure, um, so I can briefly share two. Um, one is a program um, that Denver Law created called Denver Law Ascent. It is very much a partnership. Um, my office, DEI office, student affairs, as well as academic achievement. Um, and the idea is it's a pre-orientation program designed to welcome and support incoming 1Ls from historically underrepresented groups, you know, disabled students, students of color, LGBT, first gen. Um, and it begins with like a week long program um, where they are exposed to um, Socratic method, where they get a law school exam um, mock obviously, and they get feedback from a professor. Um, they are taught, they're taught study skills, um, you know, we gave them, some of you may remember the, the Glannon's Examples and Explanations books that apparently I didn't, I never knew they existed as a 1L until I realized that all my classmates had like all of these extra, like almost like the cliff note version, right? And I'm like, oh, should I be, you know, I didn't know, right? So we paid for these books for the students. 
Um, we gave them stipends to help with um, sort of the cost of, of other books. We paired them with two L's and three L's to sort of help give them a little bit of a, you know, lay of the land. Um, and importantly, I think we really tried to uh, help them meet each other so they could build community, right, and have some camaraderie and support. And, you know, while there's certainly ways to improve the program and, you know, we're staying in contact with them throughout the year, um, you know, the feedback we've received has been really positive um, with some students saying things like, you know, this is the first time I was in a room where I wasn't the only one. Um, and this is like the just the community I needed to like have some confidence to begin law school. So um, I think why it is a good thing and, and what I think it represents more broadly is the idea of elevating, you know, two components that are like successful or important, excuse me, for success in legal education or more broadly, the legal profession. One being like the academic prep, like what does it mean to be in law school and, and presumably then what it would mean to be a lawyer, right? Um, you know, that folks without legacies of lawyers and their families don't have knowledge about. Um, and then two, it gets to that belonging piece, right? The idea of, of having meeting already the key faculty, staff and fellow students who wanna support you. Um, and research shows that belonging very much matters for success um, in law school. So um, I'm sure there are some other schools doing these kinds of things too, um, but I think we need more of this. And I also think we could be, we could think about similar types of programs for entry into the profession as well, because we also know that law school is not the same as the practice of law. So, you know, this is the lingo, these are the acronyms, like this is what the partner means when they say this or do this. I mean, these, these things that, you know, of course, everything can be individualized, but there is a standard, right, that we, many of us just sort of don't don't know. Um, so I think it's one example. Um, and then one other example is that we're running a program um, with Fort Lewis College, Metro State, and then um, a handful of HBCUs to do virtual programming and law student mentorship and um, LSAT study skills with college students who are from historically underrepresented groups to get them kind of ready, you know, before they even take the LSAT to like get exposure to law school testing to get exposure to Socratic method to hear from a 2L. So again, this is like a little bit, you know, a couple of years before, but things that just like are intentional and are an investment of both tangible and intangible resources. So people aren't just like hit with a ton of bricks when they go into a building in which they're one of the only ones and or they don't have the background foundational knowledge that many of their peers might. Um, Alexi, you mentioned HBCUs. For our listeners who don't know, what does that stand for? Sure. Um, we are partnering with a, a, a handful of HBCUs, and HBCUs um, stands for Historically Black um, Colleges and Universities, um, to attempt to uh, you know, support them and also create just sort of more of a law school readiness culture in some of those schools. Great. Thank you. And Laura, what um, programs or efforts give you hope? Um, well, I now that I've been practicing, I've, I've, meet, I've been meeting young people who've told me, that they've never in their lives met a lawyer until they either needed to be represented by one or actually became lawyers and then were surrounded by lawyers. Um, so I'm part of the um, American Immigration Lawyers Association, AILA for short. Um, and within that, um, I also am part of a subcommittee whose goal is to reach out to high schoolers and middle schoolers and start kind of what Lexi was saying, like things that will help you even enter and figure out a path to to law school and then eventually to become a lawyer. Um, so part of our goal, and, and it does give me hope, is to just so that these kids can see a lawyer um, in real life and not just like what they see in law and order. Um, because as much as I wish that it was always that fun, it's not. <laughs> so um, for me, any program where 
and, and the ones especially that I'm a part of where you're trying to reach out to communities and people before they even get to college or communities where they don't have parents that, that were able to go to grad school and become professionals, um, those things give me hope. I want you guys to try and share with me a recent success story where an aspect of your identity helped you succeed. Um, well, I, for me, any case where I am able because of the experiences that I can share with my clients or I'm able to get my client to trust me and believe me that I will fight for them both because of my own experience as an immigrant and also because of my identities. Anytime where I get to do that and then I see the client um, like even testifying court and I can tell that they've become stronger because of the support that I've provided is a success story for me. Um, I We talked earlier, I think before we started recording that on Tuesday, I won an asylum case. Um, when I first started prepping that client, he just couldn't even get a sentence out. Um, but I, by the end, he testified so beautifully that there was no doubt that he was gonna unfortunately be tortured and killed if he was deported. Um, but for me, it's always a proud moment when I see someone testifying and I know that I was a part of what gave that person the will and ability to tell their story in court. That's awesome. That's wonderful. Lexi, any recent wins for you? Yeah, I mean, I, I hesitate a little because I just think um, the world is hard and I think people are tired and I think the return, you know, quote unquote, return to life while we're still navigating the pandemic, but maybe better than we were, is is just really hard and exhausting for people and things don't don't just go away. Um, so I think I've seen a lot of folks who are really still struggling um, with that. But I will say, um, that uh, maybe just a couple of days ago, I had um, uh, a student, a first year student at the law school who came in, popped by my office and said, you know, she had a really tough class and that she was just sort of feeling a bit alone, right? Um, and part of it being very much in um, because of her identity and, and being one of the only people who looked like her in the room. And we had a chat about like power and about sort of like finding your voice and building confidence and taking your time and, you know, growth mindset and, and all of that. Um, and I talked about it as my, from my experiences as a student, which I still very much remember, and as well as a faculty member. And, um, you know, when the student left, by no means, I think, were these challenges eradicated, to be very, very clear. But she said, you know, I have to say, you know, you're, I want to be like you when I grow up. And like, I mean, it was kind of a little kidding way, because she's obviously an adult. But nevertheless, like, you know, you're a role model, um, and I really want to be like you in the future. And, um, you know, what struck me is it wasn't like I taught her any substantive law, right, in that conversation. Um, and, but it was because of my representation, you know, going to the point that Laura and I have talked a little bit about, but there's a female faculty of color, you know, sitting across from her. Um, and I think, I hope it was also because of how I made her feel. I made her feel like that she belonged here, that I listened. Um, and, you know, with everything I do at the law school, you know, working sort of really hard with others on like, you know, getting more faculty of color and, you know, getting more classes, like things that I think affect larger groups of students, which are really important. I, and I very much take as a, as, as a major asset or, or component of my job. But I also think if there is like one student of color um, or one student from a historically underrepresented group, he feels like, you know, they can make it because at least partially because I'm in their corner um, and I'm here rooting for them. I mean, I, I see that as a win. Um, I don't think it changes the structural challenges, but I think it matters for um, that their life, um, their trajectory in the profession um, uh, potentially and their sense of self. And I, I feel good about that. Thank you both so much. This has been a wonderful conversation.
So we at Stairway to ATJ would like to thank Lexi Freeman, Laura Maggio, and Emily Brock for joining us today. We'd also like to thank you for listening to this episode of Stairway to ATJ. Be sure to check out the other CBA podcasts, including The Modern Law Revolution, Our Voices, and Getting Legal with It. If you have an ATJ subject you would like us to cover here on this show, please feel free to email us at atjpodcast at cobar.org. I'm Anthony Pereira. Stay healthy and be good to each other out there. And I'm Mia Kotnick. Keep climbing, stay curious, and come volunteer with us. Thank you.